0: It's, I'm so thankful for the privilege of studying the Word of God together with you this morning. Jesus, according to Luke 9 verse 52, is methodically plotting his way to give his life as a ransom for many, not to give his life so that we can be rich and healthy, but to give His life to save us from the greater problem, our sin debt. Luke 9:52, it's announced that he has set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. That is his distinct purpose. And he will not be deterred from it. But along the way, he is giving some important lessons and teachings, not only to his disciples, but also to, excuse me, to the Pharisees. And we've just come off of a teaching in Luke 16, 1-13, where Jesus is teaching about wealth and money, and how Christians are to rightly respond to it, how, how followers of Jesus should be investing and be wise stewards. In the parable of the clever steward, we learn that the steward is planning for his own future in a greater way than Christians are even planning for the eterni- eternal future. And it's a sad state, that I think that's, that's still probably true, where, where people are, being, are financially prepared, are focused on retirement, are thinking about all the things in their future, and Christians tend to live our lives like our, with our heads in the sand, not realizing that there is eternity to invest in. And so to review what Jesus had said, the three lessons that he had given them was uh, use your temporal wealth to make eternal friends. In other words, invest your material goods, not just necessarily your money, but your house, your car, your things. Use those things to win people for eternity so that they're there to welcome you. I like that. Be faithful, number two, with all of your things. Be faithful stewards of your possessions and your money. And third, Realize that you cannot serve two supreme loves. Look in your Bibles at Luke 16, verse number 13. No servant can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. God, as a jealous God, demands that He alone be served supremely. He demands that we be undivided in our love and in our loyalty to him, even above family, even above friends, and even above finances. God is to be served supremely without looking back there Luke 9:23 to 26, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow him. God is not interested in anyone who wants to follow him and keep one foot in this world. Yet this is what a lot of so-called Christians want to do. I want to have my foot in the door. We watched a little bit on the Sunday School video this morning so that people can have their ticket to heaven. And so I want to be involved in what they might call religion or church. They might even have grown up in the church and they're part of what is called Christianity, and they're keeping one foot in the church, yet all at the same time enjoying all that the world has to offer. God doesn't want people like that. James 4 says to be friends with the world is to hate God. Adultery, he calls it, James 4. You adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God. But a lot, of, a lot of a lot of people want to have one arm around Christ and yet shaking hands with what the world has to offer. And I'm not talking about making friends with unbelievers or or being involved in secular employment. I'm talking about embracing the system of the world that is completely against Christ. So you can get to the point where you can have practicing sinners who are celebrating whatever sin that they're enjoying, pride, lust homosexuality, anger, have no desire to repent of it and yet still claim to be a Christian. That's absolute nonsense. That, that just cannot happen. Okay. This also happened in the history of the Christian church. This is what J.C. Ryle says. He lived, of course, 100, 150 years ago. Thousands on every side are continually trying to do the thing that Christ pronounces as impossible and I know the guy's mowing the grass so let's just all say that we hear that and we know that and let's just forget about it okay so we've addressed that it's over thanks guy all right here we go again thousands on every side are continually trying to do this thing that Christ says is impossible they are endeavoring to be friends with the world and friends of God at the same time here's how J.C. Ryle analyzes that their consciences are enlightened so they feel like they must have some religion but their affections are chained to earthly things that they never come up to the mark of being true Christians. And so they live in a state of constant discomfort. They have too much religion to be happy in the world, but they have too much of the world to be happy in religion. And this is the stain of the Christian church today, that Christ is not the supreme one who is loved. It is some activity or hobby or vacation spot or, or sport or entertainment or friendship or landscaping i'm filling the blank right i got to put in my landscaping today okay now there's no claim that this individual is a christian but it's the christians who are doing these things let me have a service on a saturday night so that sunday morning i can go to brunch and golf and whatever it might be right let me let me squeeze christ in wherever i can like like do you have a thursday service at 3:45 cuz that's the one time i can make it this is the attitude of Christians today. It may be a picture of what Ryle calls people who do not m- make the mark of what true Christianity is. It is certainly the mark of the Pharisees that Jesus was dealing with in this particular passage. Here's our theme for today. Okay, If we don't remember anything, here's the thing we want to remember. <clears throat> and it's long, so if you want to try to jot some of this down, fine. Here's what, the three things I want to say. The law reveals the standard that God expects us to attain and the kingdom is only accessible to those who attain it. However, it's impossible to attain so the gospel comes in and says Christ has attained it for us. Okay? I know that was long but that's the theme. The law reveals the standard that God wants us to attain. Sadly, none of us can attain it. The kingdom is only for those who can attain it. Oh no. But oh good, Christ has fulfilled that standard for us so we can attain it through Christ. Does that make sense what I just said? It should, if we're every Christian in here. If you look at the Old Testament, what the law says is this is the standard that God has set. The standard that God has set is to be what? Holy or righteous or perfect. Though we can interchange all those words, right? You got your righteousness has to exceed the Pharisees. Be holy as I am holy. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is the standard we have all been asked by God to attain. Look at the Ten Commandments. They are still in effect today. Have you mastered those? If you have, then you can attain the kingdom. If you haven't, which is true for everyone, then you cannot enter into the kingdom. But thankfully, Christ came, lived under that same law, and did attain God's perfect standard so that he could die in our place The gospel message is announced that anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their substitute sacrifice can be saved and enter the kingdom. Praise God! Here's the four things I want to talk about today. Four headings as we walk through this passage. We have the Pharisees' response. We have Jesus' diagnosis. We have God's timeline. We have the law's permanence. Okay, those are the four things. Four things. If you're writing notes, here's how we're going. The Pharisees' response. Jesus' diagnosis. God's timeline, and then the law's permanence. Let me take a drink while you look at verse 14. <clears throat> that singing has got my voice. Uh, I'm struggling there. Okay, so Pharisee's response, Jesus' diagnosis, God's timeline, the law's permanence. And it's verse 14 to 18 is where we come up. So remember, the context is Jesus has been speaking to his disciples about how followers of Jesus should be responding with money. Here's the Pharisee's response. And we'll read the whole text first. And then we'll break it down. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things. And they ridiculed him. And he said to them, so now Jesus shifts to the Pharisees. He was talking to the disciples, he shifts to the Pharisees. You are those, Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Okay, number one. And all the, the way they go is... Uh, it's in 14, 15, 16, and then 17 and 18 are combined. So verse 14 is the Pharisees' response. Verse 14 is the Pharisees' response to what Jesus was saying. Now remember, his instructions were to followers of him on how to deal with their money, but the Pharisees overheard it. They were listening in. Remember, they were the religious, uh, relig- proud religious people of that day and were attempting to guard anyone from this type of teaching that Christ was making. So they were listening in. They heard all these things, and they ridiculed Christ. Now this is a really curious thing for the Pharisees. Think about this. As recently as Luke 15, verse 1, the Pharisees are mad that Jesus is hanging out with sinful people, with sinners. Now he is giving instructions, we could even say he's he's giving laws that would be important for obedience, and they mock him. So they get mad when he talks to sinners, and he gets mad when he calls people to righteousness. They just just get mad at Jesus. They're ridiculing him. Why are they ridiculing him? It says, because they loved money. If we aren't in love with Jesus, one has said, then it is because we are more in love with something else. Just like the false teachers of today, money was their master. Their strongest affection was not God, it was the pursuit of wealth. And they thought, well, how foolish is Christ? This guy doesn't even have a place to live. No wonder he's against money because he doesn't have any, is what they're maybe thinking. And this teaching, of course, is foolishness. This is from the Pharisees' perspective. Isn't it interesting that the response of a person who does not love Jesus supremely is to mock Him, to scoff at Him, to laugh and ridicule. I've stood here and seen people laughing when I've been preaching. In response to something has been said. I don't think it's because they told a little joke, knock knock, hey did you hear the one about the, the plumber that ran into the, you know, whatever. No, I said something specific about a certain aspect of the principle of God's law and people are laughing. Oh, this is so funny. To mock and to scoff What are we told about in the Bible regarding mocking and scoffing? Psalm 1 says, Blessed man who does not walk in the way of sinners, nor stand in the seat of the scornful, nor sit in the seat of the scoffer. God says blessed is the person who does not participate with people who scoff at the things of God. The world is full of people who scoff at the things of God today. Psalm 13, or Proverbs 13.1. A scoffer will not listen to rebuke. I mean, as recently as a few weeks ago, I said something about some specific aspect of the Christian life, and people were laughing. It's just, it's just astonishing. Because a rebuke, oh, I'm uncomfortable with that rebuke. Ha, <laughs> ha, that's stupid, you dumb idiot, Andy, you old-fashioned loser. And what they're really mocking is the commands of Christ. Second Peter 3.3. 3. Why do people scoff? Why do people mock? Here's why. 2 Peter 3.3 3 says, Knowing first that scoffers will come in the last days with their scoffing, following their sinful desires. The reason they scoff at Christ, at Christ's teaching, at the Gospel, as at, and at obedience, is because they love their sinful desires. What is it Brian Chappell said? The reason we sin is because we love it. They're following their sinful desires. That's what the Pharisees are doing here. Scoffers scoff. Because they love their sin. Same thing is said in Jude, verse 18 and 19. In Jude, verse 18 and 19, it says, In the last days there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. They're not following Christ, they're pursuing their passions. It is these who cause division. They are worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Do you know what a sign of an unbeliever is? They scoff. A person who is a believer will not scoff at the teachings of Christ. That makes sense? I mean, that's what Jude says. Let's identify these people for who they are. They are people who scoff. They follow their own worldly desires. They cause divisions. They are devoid of the Spirit, Jude says. They do not have the Holy Spirit within them. How can you have the Holy Spirit within them and mock something? In Acts chapter 2, the disciples are mocked on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 17, the disciples are mocked, Paul himself specifically, as he preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And of course, our Lord was mocked in the face of his suffering. There's been times I've given the gospel in this church at specific times, especially where we've had... Uh, groups of people in but there's been other times where i've given the gospel and just seen people mocking it just it it that scares me that scares me i mean it angers me too that someone would scoff at the free gift of the gospel um but but it's like it, it just it's just a fearful thing that someone could laugh in the face of this gift It reveals also that there is something in these scoffers that is more supreme in their life than Christ, and ultimately that they're not right with God. Besides the Pharisees mocking Christ and his teaching on money, they were also, in essence, rejecting the very way of salvation that Jesus had proclaimed. That's their response. They laugh at him. What is Jesus' diagnosis? Next verse in our second thought today. Jesus' diagnosis of them is found in verse 15. He says to them, you know, Jesus doesn't slither away. He speaks right to their mocking. Oh, oh, you're those guys who justify themselves before men. (laughs) God knows your heart. And what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus turns to them and identifies what is at the root of the problem with these Pharisees, and that is this, that they were attempting to justify themselves Before men. So let's, before we get too deep into that, let's define what we mean by justify. The word justify means to declare righteous. To declare righteous. It is a judicial term, and it is the idea that this this opinion has been handed down by a higher authority, and the statement is that this person is not a sinner. They They are declared to be not a sinner, they are declared to be righteous. The Pharisees were attempting to justify themselves before men, whether it was through their own goodness, their own obedience to the law, whether it was their pursuit of wealth, which to them may have seemed a sign of God's blessing. right? And this is kind of the the MO of the false teacher today. If you're rich, God has blessed you. So you can't, you know, certainly you got to be right if you're rich. And maybe that's what the Pharisees thought as well. Maybe this is a sign of God's favor. The Pharisees, in other words, were seeking for a relationship with God through all the wrong channels. Whether it be through their own walk or through their wealth is the wrong way to be justified. You cannot justify yourself. The distinguishing mark of Christianity is this, that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone that is what Christianity has always been about it is the belief of any true Christian that God himself declares us righteous by faith in Christ Romans 5 1 therefore being justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ you are not justified because you're a good person God doesn't weigh in His hands your works and then make a judicial decision. He makes the decision based on your faith. Galatians 2.16 A man is not justified by the works of the law, but he is justified by faith in Jesus Christ. I said it earlier in our theme that the law has revealed God's standard to be holy and perfect, which Romans 3.23 states, we have all fallen short of that standard many recognize that many feel the weight of that and yet never are saved because they attempt to to justify themselves that's an important thing there are a lot of people that will feel bad about their sin they will even recognize that there's a God that they've failed and instead of running to him in faith. In the Gospel, they attempt to start doing better or working at it, and they attempt to justify themselves. Isn't it interesting in the passage, the irony of this? Verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves. A sinner declaring himself righteous. That's stupid. Okay? I'm a wicked person, and I have a declaration to make. Okay? Today, I declare myself righteous. Justify yourself. That's what they're attempting to do. Justify yourself. Yet this is what the Pharisees were attempting. Romans 4 verse 5 says that God justifies the one who believes, not the one who works. Because if God justified us by our works, it would make the almighty, holy, omnipotent God, like what do I owe you again? It'd be like he'd have to pull out his wallet, in a sense. Like, oh, I owe you something? Oh, yeah, you're like the kid who mows your grass. Thanks, Judah, except in his case, he does it just for meals and stuff. But the kid who comes to your house and mows your grass and says, that'll be 20 bucks. And you say, oh, yeah, okay, this is the deal we made. It's like coming to God and saying, just like Olsteen said, remind God of what you did. I went to church every day. I taught Sunday school class. I served as an elder, as a pastor, whatever it might be, we might say. And we bring those works to God and says, Oh, yeah, good, okay, God. What do we again? Oh, eternal life. Ridiculous. This is the position the Pharisees were in. God will be nobody's debtor, but He will be a giver. He will give eternal life if we simply believe. Our hope for a right standing before God is not found in ourselves, it is found outside of ourselves, okay? Christ became a curse for us and lived the life we we're supposed to, but could not. If we believe that, we are declared righteous. It's beautiful. We need a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves. While the rest of the world attempts to build for themselves a resume to present to God, we tear our resume up and ask God to give us Christ's resume. That's what salvation is. It's like, you know, I don't know if people do resumes anymore, you you know, monsters.com or whatever it is that hires you or whatever, Uh, you know, here's my experience, here's my education, here's the things I've done, it's, you know, like, will you hire me, please? Oh, well, we'll look over this, say, oh, yeah, you deserve this job. And people are building a resume for God that will ultimately be ignored by him. The only resume that he will look at is the resume of Christ and his perfect life, which he applies to those who believe by faith in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? That's the gospel. And then you meet these people who won't repent, they ridicule. They won't believe, they boast. They won't trust, they try. Right? You know, we're we're not going to trust Jesus, we're going to try harder. We're not going to believe, we're going to boast in ourselves. We're not going to repent, we're just going to make fun of him. Though the Pharisees attempted to justify themselves before men. Now let me make a quick statement here. I suppose that's possible. I suppose you could justify yourselves before men. I suppose you could make men think that you were righteous or declared righteous. I suppose that's possible. But the goal is not to be justified before men. Who cares what men think? The goal is to be justified before God. We don't want to be justified before others, but before him. And Jesus says, even though though you might fool these men, you don't fool who? You don't fool who? You don't fool God. Look at the verse. You are those who justify yourselves before men. You're working really hard to make everybody think you are righteous, but God knows your hearts. Why I read Galatians 6, be not deceived, God is not mocked. That word means that we may mock God in this life. There may those be those who scoff and ridicule at him in this life. But the, ver- the word in Galatians 6 means actually God will not allow himself to be mocked. God is not going to be tricked. God's not going to be, the sucker in the room. He knows the extent of all of our wickedness. Now this is where we want to cringe under that piano for a while, right? Because he knows the extent of our hearts. No matter how hard we may work to hide it, he knows every act of rebellion, every thought and feeling of superiority that we might have towards another, the quiet murmurings and complainings or cursings that we utter in our private lives, the thoughts of lust and anger, pride, He knows all that. Nothing is hidden. Nothing is hidden. Well, I can go into my private room and no one will see. Or I can just think this in my head or mutter it while I'm driving in my car. God knows the extent of our sin. Every thought, every feeling, every action, every word, he knows. And the Pharisees would be condemned for that. The Pharisees were condemned by the same thing that condemns all unbelievers still. They're condemned by their pride and by their pretense. This is still what condemns people today. The pride that says, I don't need salvation because I'm a pretty good person. And the pretense that says, on the outside I look good, but if anyone knew the real me, they would know what I'm really like. Pride and pretense condemn people to hell. As God knew their hearts, they... they, they didn't care about that they didn't care about that when we readily admit our inability to keep the law though as prescribed we may despair at the thought that deliverance is not possible but praise the lord it's not let's look at the third point god's timeline this is in verse number 16 okay, verse number 16 this is where jesus starts to outline to the pharisees hey here's what god has been doing in the world and this is important for you to understand because they were law keepers at least outward law keepers they weren't inward law keepers as we've just examined Jesus says, of course, that what is exalted among men, yourselves, and your pride and your pretense, that's an abomination to God. God hates pride. God hates falsehood, right? That's pride and pretense. He hates those things. What you are are lifting up, your pride and your pretending, is what God hates. God hates pride and God hates pretending. And if you're either one of those positions, repent of that. Repent of your pride and repent of your false uh, exterior and really get right with God. So now Jesus tells the Pharisees that, they, that he has a plan, he has a timeline, that in God's timeline, the law and prophets had existed, but it is the appearance of John the Baptist that denotes a bit of a shift, and now the good news is proclaimed. You see that in verse 16? Jesus says to them, the law and the prophets were till John, that's John the Baptist, since then, since John, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. John is often referred to as like the last Old Testament prophet. Even though he's in the New Testament, he's still still on the the left side of the cross, so to speak. He's He's still in that law and prophet era. But what Jesus is saying is, yeah, the law and the prophets existed, but since John came, we have a new message, and it is the message of the gospel. There is the inauguration of a fulfillment of what has been proclaimed in the law and the prophets Jesus himself, Luke 24, 47, John 5, 37, had talked about himself being the subject, the content of the law and the prophets, and now here he is in the fulfillment. He's saying that in God's timeline, there was an era of promise, and there's an era of fulfillment. And now we are in the era of fulfillment, and the fulfillment is that there's the good news of the kingdom. The promise of the coming Messiah is here. All that you read about in the Old Testament, about light and grace and peace and salvation. That is now in front of you. And it's crazy to think of the Pharisees standing before the fulfillment of the promise of the Law and the Prophets, scoffing at the Messiah, at the hope that is their Savior. And Jesus is saying that is not the response that will grant you acceptance into the kingdom. The message of the good news of the kingdom is the invitation that sinners who repent will be welcomed. We've talked about the good news of the kingdom all throughout Luke. In fact, when Luke begins, and even as as the other Gospels begin, John comes preaching, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus comes preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, a couple chapters ago in our study in Luke, said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Repentance is the key for entrance into the kingdom. This is the new message that is being proclaimed Jesus is saying it's a fulfillment really. It's not necessarily a new message, but it's fulfillment of the promised message. What Jesus is really saying to the Pharisees is, look guys, God knows you are rotten to the core and you're missing this era of fulfillment. Your deliverer is standing before you and you are on the outside. The kingdom of God is is being preached and repentance is being preached and you're missing it. And then he uses this weird phrase that is much debated, okay? The law and the prophets were tell John, since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. And we have to talk about what that means. It's very perplexing. The word there means violence or overpowering or impelling or rushing into let me give you four options that I've discovered on what this might mean and I'm going to tell you which one I lean towards okay and I I feel like I feel like I'm I feel like I'm accurate in it we're going to give the the four that are the main thoughts here so let's get our picture again right Here, these guys are mocking the messiah Jesus is saying hey the law and the prophets were for a time uh we'll talk about that just a second now it's the message of the kingdom and, the, and really the messenger of the kingdom is here standing in front of you. Stop mocking it. Everyone's forcing their way into the kingdom. What does that mean? Here's four options. First, some believe that Jesus is saying, guys, while you're here mocking it, there are people who with great energy and zeal are pressing their way into the kingdom and you're missing it. This is one possible option. He, you know, he's basically saying, uh, you're here complaining about what I have to say. And meanwhile, there are literally thousands of people pressing their way into the kingdom by repentance. Is it possible that Jesus is referring to the zeal of others who are seeking to enter the kingdom, who are pressing into it forcefully? That's kind of a positive spin. Second, perhaps Jesus is saying it this way, that there are those who are rushing into the kingdom uh, with their own energy, maybe the idea that the uh, of pressing their way in or forcing their way in makes them makes. There's these group of people that are kind of trying to get in the kingdom the same way you're trying to get in the kingdom. You're trying to press into it the wrong way. There's no pressing into it. You just you just come into it through faith and repentance. You don't work towards the kingdom. You don't try to grasp the kingdom forcefully. You just enter it, repent. Could be that he's referring to that. You understand those so far? Okay. Third one. It's a passive verb. Now, passive verb, not to be too technical, passive verb means the action is happening to the person. An active verb means the action is happening, the the person is committing the action. I punched you, or I was punched, I received the punch. The the verb here, forcing, is a a passive verb. It, It seems to indicate that the action is happening to the person. And so it could be that Jesus is saying this, everyone is being pressed in. I told you that one of the definitions of the word forcing into, it meant violence, but it also meant compel or impel. Could it mean that what he's saying is everyone is being pressed into it? In other words, everyone is being earnestly pleaded with to come into the kingdom Um could it, could it be that's and you can connect it kind of back to the word preached the gospel is being preached and people are being compelled to enter the kingdom could it be that could it mean fourth and last that Jesus is actually talking about the sovereignty of God that people are being pressed into it like God is actually forcing people almost against their will to get into that kingdom kind of like a kind of like a, a, a a guy in a big crowd. All right, get in there, right? Forcing people into a certain place. Because people cannot get into the kingdom themselves, they must be drawn. They must be uh, they must have the sovereignty of God act upon their lives to get in. All four of these options are plausible. Let's think about them again. Jesus saying, "Guys, you're missing the kingdom while well, meanwhile there's a lot of people getting in you're using great zeal and energy. They want in. Why don't you?" Second, Uh, there's a lot of people just like you trying to get into the kingdom in the wrong way. Third, I'm earnestly pleading with you to get into the kingdom, or this is just talking about the sovereignty of God. There's good people that think all kinds of different things. I think the correct interpretation is number three. I think it means that Jesus is saying, look, repentance is being preached, and I'm earnestly begging you, Again, the reason I believe that is because the verb is passive. It's, it's a, the action is happening to the people. So it's almost as if there, the idea is, listen, you guys are rotten to your core. God knows that. I know that, Jesus is saying. And the law and the prophets revealed the standard. John came announcing repentance. I came announcing repentance would you please enter the kingdom? Now, the reason I think this is because I'm kind of connecting it back to Luke 15. Think about the Pharisees in Luke 15. In Luke 15, in the parable of the prodigal son, who do the Pharisees represent? Remember? Who do the Pharisees represent? Which, which person? The older son, who did not like it that the younger son was being allowed into the kingdom. What did the father do with the older son? He went out there and he what? Pleaded with him. Would you not come in? I mean, just less than a chapter later, Jesus is still talking to the Pharisees. And I admit I could be wrong. There's a lot of people agree that it's number one, that they think it's really the zeal and energy that people are moving in. And that could be the case. But I really think in our context here, Jesus is saying, you guys are so rotten, and yet the gospel is being preached, and I'm compelling you to come in. Just like the father did in Luke 15 with the older son who represented you too. And it fits with our warning to the scoffers. Listen, you are mocking. That is not the response that gets you into the kingdom. Would you please respond to the kingdom rightly and repent of your sins and come in? That's why I had to wait an extra week to preach this message because I was just trying to figure what that meant. And I, I, I land on that, and I think it's right. I could debate and talk about it, and and the other the other uh, interpretations make sense too. But I think that I think Jesus in talking to the Pharisees is really is really uh, emphasizing the need to compel, not to just abandon scoffers, not um, not to necessarily give up hope that people still won't be saved, but to go to these people that consistently reject and press them into the kingdom. Not like you actually are literally pressing them into the kingdom, but everyone understands what I mean, right? Just an earnestness, 2 Corinthians 5.21, I beg you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God and continue to implore and impel them to come because the time is coming at an end. God's timeline, again, that's the key here. He is attempting to persuade them because the time is coming to an end. You must sense a, an urgency to get into the kingdom. Okay. Moving on to the last thing, the permanence of the law. The law's permanence here. And another tricky thing, okay? So when Jesus says the law and the prophets were until John and now the gospel is, is here and we're repenting of the kingdom, a lot of people say, well, the law has been set aside now, right? The law is not important anymore. We don't have to obey the law. But then Jesus right away says, but I'm going to tell you that it'd be easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to pass away. In other words, the law is still in effect because the law is, not that the law is the way to gain salvation, but the law is still in effect to the, to the extent that it's what God expects of his people. God still expects his people not to murder people. God still expects his people not to lie. God still expects his people to not to steal. God expects his people to continue to hold to that standard. That has not been put aside. Remember Matthew 5, 17 and 18? Do you think I've come to abolish the law? No, I've come to fulfill it, he says. The the law is still in effect. Jesus announces the validity of that law as the expression of God's will for His people. And what is God's will for His people? A life of dedication and devotion. Undividedly so. And so Jesus gives the Pharisees an example of this when He talks about the divorce law in verse number 18. It's almost as if you could insert the word for instance... Jesus doesn't say that, but that's how I interpret it. It is easier for heaven, guys, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for the law to pass away. For example, divorce, God's standard for divorce is still in, in effect. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Nothing has changed. We live in a society that especially in relation to sex and gender and marriage, want to say words like progressive and modern, and when you hear those things, it really means unbiblical. When you hear someone say, I'm a progressive Christian, run away. Run away. Because what they mean is, I'm going to look at the culture, and I'm going to interpret the Bible through the culture. That's what a progressive does. Not 100%, but that's what, that's what I've experienced. Come on, this is an old-fashioned book. Let's get with the times. Heard this over and over recently as I've dived into some social issues online and stuff, and it just it's frightening what our children will have to face. What Jesus is saying here is God's law still stands. Now, we're not going to involve ourselves in a tremendous discussion on divorce today. That's not the point of the passage. We could talk about our beliefs on divorce and remarriage, etc., what Jesus is saying here, you divorce your wife and marry someone else, you commit adultery. You marry a woman, divorce from her husband, you commit adultery. The reason he says this is because the Pharisees were notorious for divorcing their wife if supper was bad. Or if he just became unsatisfied with her. You ever know, look online? Actor divorces wife after four days of marriage, right? This, the idea. It's, it's my personal belief and I think the Bible bears this out, that it is God's will for husband and wife to remain married and, and, to, and to maintain that marriage covenant for life. till death, do us part. The Pharisees were saying, hey, for any reason, divorce is acceptable. And Jesus is exposing the hard-heartedness of their heart. To remarry a woman while her husband still lives. Adultery. To divorce your wife and marry another. Adultery. You know, Jesus is saying here, the point is, you Pharisees are hard-hearted because you're dis- divorcing your wife because your bed wasn't made in the morning. She was a bad cook. Her dress dissatisfied you that day, right? She, she looked at you funny. It's a revelation to their own inability to keep... The law. That's what Jesus is pointing out to the Pharisees. Here you are justifying yourselves before men, but in reality you're not keeping the law which is still uh, still valid for today, Christ is saying, and yet you're trying to justify yourselves. you got it all messed up. You're scoffing at your own salvation. Understand why we talked, this is why the gospel is such good news, because who can keep That law. Nobody. Nobody. So stop trying to pretend like you can and simply accept the gospel message which Christ offers and rest your faith and trust in Christ alone. Fair enough? Let's bow for prayer. Father, it is good to study your word so closely this morning and to hear your admonitions to the Pharisees, and we hear them. Father, may we not be scoffers of your word. May we not be mockers of your truth, for it reveals in us really a hard-heartedness and perhaps even really an unsaved soul. God, thank you that the gospel has been preached this morning, that if we simply repent of our sins and exercise faith and trust in Jesus, we can be saved. If there's someone in our crowd today that does not know Christ in that way, may they repent and trust in Christ. Some of us feel the weight of the law on our hearts still, even though we are Christians. Father, help us to sense and remember that Christ became a curse for us and bore our sins on the cross and remembers them no more. That sins that we have committed have been forgiven in our past and and we can walk happily and rightly with you. May that be our joy as we leave today, even as we think about the gospel. And may it motivate us to share this very same message with those we love and those we come in contact with. Thank you, Father, for these friends who've gathered today. May the word uh, be the encouragement for us and carry us through the next week and, and remind us of how good and lovely the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And we pray these things in his wonderful name. Amen.